So, um, Catherine, sex, power, shadow, you know, what does this evoke for you? Um, it evokes a lot of different thoughts on different levels. I mean, it's a very topical theme. Um, what with all the sexual harassment stuff that's going on. And I guess when I hear about um, mostly men in power abusing their position in order to get some kind of sexual gratification, um, as a woman, I think, mm, I wonder what's happening for those women. Yeah. There may be some who are just basically blackmailed, so it may be purely a matter of power. But I, I, what, what I find more interesting is the, the point where actually for women power is sexy. And so that's where the idea of shadow comes in. It's like the, the, the abuse of power is the shadow side of the fact that actually for many women power is, is sexually attractive. And it's a good part of a sexual relationship is that you feel you're having a, a relationship with a partner who is powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're not going into, oh, power is bad. But actually saying, yeah, power can be sexy. And, uh, and, uh, and here, uh, what we're talking about is not power per se, but the shadow of power, the abuse of power. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I'm the last person to say that power is bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I'm a body psychotherapist, and I do think that body psychotherapy has a particular uh, concept of power, which is very much a personal, embodied Power that isn't the power over others, but it's just the power to be myself as fully as I can. Um, and I would see that on the whole as a very positive thing. And then I guess we would see that the power over others, the power that makes us able to, to make others do things or, you know, use others to gratify our needs and all the rest of it. I would see that as a neurotic, mainly narcissistic distortion. Yeah. Which yeah. does a lot of evil in the world, basically. Yeah. So, so as therapists, we, we try, we do our best to empower people. And that's that finding that that's personal right. power. You know, and, 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 um, and make a big distinction between that and, uh, people who try to have power over others. That's right. And this power over others can either be personal, i.e. at the extreme end by, from somebody who bullies, or somehow coerces others, or blackmails others, or it can be more institutional, where you have a position that gives you power. Um, which I think is probably also relevant for therapists, because of course, being a therapist is a kind of power. And even though there are, particularly amongst the humanistic Therapists, there are many who would like to not know about this. So they, they avoid the particular shadow of, of the power that I, as therapists, have over my clients. Yeah, yeah. So we are in a position of power as well. And we ignore it um, to, with, with consequences when we do. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And I guess... I don't know, the way I've been taught and what I've learned since is 
the the way to to be with that power is not to avoid it, but to to use it with the, all you know all the responsibility that I can and try to to be relational really to always ask how is this for the other person? What's happening for the other person? What might this mean for the other person? So are you talking here uh, as a therapist or in general? Because I could see it coming both ways. Yes, I think it, it's applicable in, in any way, yeah. I think, I think, you know, if you like power, certainly power that's down to a position we have or, or personal power, but it's a, in a way it's a privilege, and I think privileges always come with obligations. Mm-hmm. And the obligation is to, to be concerned for, for those in our power. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's in a view that's very relational. Um, you know, we have power. It's part of the relationship. We have yeah. responsibility. It's also part of the relationship. And a sense of self, accountability, responsibility in terms of recognizing, you know, this relationality. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think a lot of therapeutic relationships can get broken because the therapist just didn't realize what was happening for the client and the client somehow didn't feel able to to communicate that. And in therapy, you know, in an ideal world it would be possible to eventually communicate it. In the real world it's much harder to do that, so... Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm wondering if maybe one possible way we can, uh, you know, continue from this is to say, so, um, you know, this, this wave of, um, uh, sexual harassment revelations, uh, yeah. points to the abuses of power, the difference between, you know, personal power and abuse of power. And mm-hmm. as therapists, it probably behooves us to actually use this as an incentive. Uh, to pay attention to it in, in terms of how we behave as therapists vis-à-vis our clients. What are yeah. the ways in which we might not be as aware of our power? Are there ways, including embodied ways, that we can pay attention to yeah. uh, the presence and the play of power, you know, as it plays out in the therapeutic relationship? Yes. Um, I guess it's... You know, I can see one difficulty with that, which is certainly if we look at the sexual harassment claims, these are very much made by an underprivileged group against the the ruling powerful group. And you'd have to, if you look at that from outside, you think, yeah, well, it's not surprising that men don't do anything about this because they're the ones in power. It's the ones who are who don't have the power who actually have to to initiate the change. Uh, I think in in the therapeutic setting this might not be quite like that. Mm-hmm. So there might it might be slightly different, and I um, undoubtedly it also makes a difference that clients are more willing and ther- psychotherapy trainees are more willing these days to point out these dynamics. Um, and to protest when they feel treated as in any way less than human. But I guess, I guess there, there are some very obvious things. 
Um, so I, I was trained by, an, you know, largely men who mostly were quite tall and physically quite powerful. And at the time, we were still taught quite a lot of sort of high energy um, techniques where, where you really use your own body to, to meet the client's body in sometimes quite forceful ways. And although this was all modified, and we always said, well, if you're smaller than your client, you have to modify this as you have to. But I've often wondered since, hmm, I wonder what it's like to be in the world where actually most people are smaller than you. And actually you can sort of invite a lot of stuff to come at you and not have to be afraid. <laughs> because when you're a woman, it's the world's just not like that. It's completely different. Mostly you're afraid of other people because you're, you can't be sure that you'll be strong enough to, to actually really meet the challenge. Apart from also being trained not to, not to go for confrontation physically. So that's a really obvious way now where you can yeah. say, actually the world is different for men and, and for, for people who are quite big and hefty. And it might be, it might be interesting to see if we can factor that in somehow. And so that's a very, that's a very powerful point because, um, um, you know, it has to do, certainly one of the things you mentioned is it has to do with the differences between men and women, uh, you know, in terms of size, weight, uh, but also psychological, sociological training of, yeah. uh, of gender role. Um, yeah. But it has also to do with um, being a tall, powerful person versus somebody who is, you know, smaller or That's less right. hefty. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. It might also, you know, have to do with age. Um, you know, somebody who is young is going to have more stamina than somebody who's not. Uh, it has to do with uh, life history, somebody who's had a trauma or had difficulty. So there's a lot of questions of meaning. And yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, without discounting in any way what you're saying about men versus women in this uh, situation, I would say there's also something about simply uh, that assumption uh, from the people in authority, in this case the male therapists who were training you, uh, that their viewpoint, their perspective is the only one in the world and not counting that other people can actually see the same situation in a totally different way based on who they are and their experience. That's right, yes. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And of course we all do this. Yeah, We all have a bias which is based on our own body and based on our own experience. Um, so, yeah, uh, and I guess, you know, for me it would mean, for instance, that I would value the power of having a lot of knowledge of the world and a certain wisdom and some intelligence higher than just being athletic and physically gung-ho and, and, and willing to engage on, on having big fights with my clients. Um, for somebody else, that might be different. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about uh, value systems um, that, you know, again, we evolve based on who we are physically, emotionally, life history, and how we can be blind um, to other people's values, even with the best of intentions. Yes. I, yes, I, w I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think 
where therapists are perhaps at risk is where they take their own good intentions for granted. Um, and and I think that's that you know that's often the point where I think well, well I'm trying to help this client and I can't see that actually for this particular client in this particular situation this isn't at all helpful. Yeah 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 yeah. So so again here a big difference uh, you know in the cases of sexual abuse we talked about there is yeah. no real benevolent intentions in this case yes. in our case as therapists there is a benevolent intentions we take it for granted that uh, we are good people trying to help clients. That's right, yeah. But so how do we how do we notice that? How do we, you know, it's very difficult. This is a blind spot. So uh, in the best cases, how do we become aware of it? Um, I wish I knew. It's a very simple answer. I don't, I don't have simple answers. I mean... Being very observant to and and keep seeking the feedback from the client, I think it's probably a good rule of thumb never to take it granted that what we're doing is actually helpful for a client. Um, but there and there might be other warning signs. Um, I know one colleague who has done a lot of ethical complaints, and who says the one thing that's common to all people who who commit boundary transgressions is that they'll all say, oh, but this is different. So maybe when, when you start, when you catch yourself thinking, oh, but this is, I'm different, maybe that's when you're most at risk. <laughs> that would be a slightly paradoxical answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so one thing is to be aware of it and to constantly check for it, to be, to maintain that sense of attunement, communication. Uh, feedback, um, yeah. and the other uh, big, big dangerous signal is, oh, but I'm different. I think so, yeah, when when you sort of, when the part of you might know that what you're doing isn't quite okay, and you and you find yourself trying to persuade yourself that it is okay, really. But that, it does presuppose a high degree of self-awareness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. An openness to the shame of realizing that See, what I'm doing here isn't okay. So that might be a good segue uh, into the notion of shame. Power, yeah. shadow, shame. Yeah. yeah. It must be one of the, one of the shadows of power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what shall I say about shame? Um, <clears throat> in, a, in a situation of abuse, much of the shame that should be the abuser's shame passes on to the victim, usually. That seems to be a very typical pattern. Um, And um, I think it's unfortunately also typical for victims who seek to do something about their situation to try and give the shame back to the abuser by shaming, as is happening now, by shaming abusers. I think, I mean, collectively there may be some use in this, as, as it probably is at the moment. For an individual, I doubt that that's very useful. And I mean neither for the victim nor for the perpetrator. Um, to, to take revenge in that sense is usually actually not a thing that makes anything better. Um, and I would assume that most people in positions of power who abuse that power would be very defended against shame. 
that's yeah. sort of part of the presentation. Yeah, yeah. So just just shame by itself um, uh, is not really achieving its ends because the perpetrator is actually somebody who has a thick armor against that. Yes, and yes, that, I mean, it, you know, I, you can publicly humiliate somebody, but whether they will actually feel shame that goes somewhere, or they may feel shame that to them feels abusive again. So they may feel end up feeling abused. Um, and because I think it takes a, de- a, a considerable degree of psychological mater- ma- maturity to be able to to feel shamed and to be able to process that and say, actually, yeah, what I done wasn't okay, and this is what I'm going to do about it. Um, that's that seems to be a quite a rare thing these days. So uh, what we're talking about here is uh, shame in interpersonal relations, like, the, you know, the, the victim uh, trying to get something from the perpetrator That's in terms right. of eliciting mm-hmm. shame is not really a good strategy. And we're talking about that as opposed to, say, the public outcry, uh, which then creates, has an impact on the employer or, the, or, or authorities, uh, and then, yes. uh, you know, has a way of controlling uh, the, uh, the abuse of the perpetrator. Yes, that's right. So the, the, the social uh, um, zeitgeist, if you like, will change through the massive public shaming of people, as, as is happening now, so that it, it becomes unacceptable, basically, to, to behave in a certain way, whereas until now it has been... Okay, that's, so I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how helpful it is for the guys to also forget that people still need to have a relationship with power. <laughs> you know, the, the solution isn't going to be that nobody is allowed any power or people in power need to be very tightly regulated or very tightly uh, bound by rules. Um, that probably isn't a very creative way of, for the whole thing to go. Yeah, so we're coming back to the sense that power by itself is not necessarily bad. And actually, by trying to, to be too rigid about it, um, we actually miss out on something that in the long run is a more productive area, which is to help people having a more productive relationship with power. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good psychotherapeutic aim, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not very many people will come to therapy and say, I want a different relationship with my own power. But often that is what they mean, and often that is what needs to happen. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, how people, maybe expectation of having a different relationship with power, what they might expect at the outset, and what happens with, uh, you know, that we try to do. Um... Ooh, that's a that's a very big field. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I give you what it evokes for me, just maybe as a starting point, is yeah. somebody who comes in and says, you know, um, I'm very angry. I'm an angry person, and yeah. I shouldn't be, you know. And and actually, okay. to tell people how anger yeah. is good, and it's a question of you know taming the horse as opposed to killing the horse. Yes. Yes. So. Yeah, so that's, that would be a very good description. Or somebody who comes in who says they're very timid or they never get anywhere in life. 
and how how can we give them a bit more of a sense of their own power? I think there are always there are always two two ways of working, and and generally, I tend to go backwards and forwards between them depending on where there is some mileage. One would be to to look at what gets in the way, look at all the things that stop the person from being powerful, which are usually good reasons, um, and generally are the, the, the processes that are not entirely in the past, but are actually still going on in the present. So you could call that resistance in, in the most general sense. But it, they're, they're generally active processes like, um, if I become powerful, nobody will support me, I'll be lonely, I'll be on my own. Yeah, these are sort of very typical um, fears that people have of being powerful. Um, or if I'm powerful, I become dangerous. Um, or if I'm powerful, I will, I will, you know, create terribly bad relationships. And then on the other hand, you can you can also work to to you know put the deeper dynamic and say okay so you know if 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 you're in a position where you want a particular goal how do you go about it in in a slightly more grown up way yeah where you can just be quite matter of fact about um, how do you how do you get what you want in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so enlisting actually, uh, even that question is, is a way to, to already reach the person at a level of having some power. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's right. You yeah. connect with the empowered side of that person. Uh, uh, you have to do that at some point, yes. Yeah. Sometimes you have to reach very deep or, you know, really find a tiny little spark of power in the person, mm-hmm. but, but, and then nurture that. And this can take a very long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if somebody has survived to the age where they present the therapy, there's probably some power there somewhere. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And sometimes it also includes undoing the kind of narcissistic belief in power, meaning power over and control over other people and you know, just finding ways of getting from others what you want without any kind of regard to who the other person is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially if you work very much with very young states of the person, because they're usually the states, uh, that, or they're usually the, the ages of development where where people really don't know about others and where people are or very small children are really not capable of seeing other people as people. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, then sometimes you have to help the person or hope that the person makes that transition somehow. Yeah, so we're talking about, um, you know, very um, being, paying attention to where the sense of power is in that person. Yes. You know, yeah. the assumption that if they've come to see us, they've grown to a certain age, uh, you know, they've, it requires some degree of power, and so yeah. building from that. And, yeah. and and as you talk about this, you know, I'm drawn to something we talked earlier in the conversation, uh, and you were talking about your own training in um, somatic psychotherapy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know those trainers who were essentially athletic men and not necessarily connected to say a woman training. 
And mm-hmm. so the experience as a woman trainee in that th- in that context was probably something where you were m- more aware of your lack of power relative to those men. Um, I'm just wondering uh, how you connected to your own power and your way of expressing power, you know, in that setting. Right. Um, I mean, for a start, I have to say that I think I went to a very good training school. I think the trainers were considerate people and people who were open to seeing other points of view and open to having a sense of diversity and a sense of how others are different and have different viewpoints. So it wasn't impossible to have the conversation. Um, I, at the time, mostly I assumed that I I didn't feel very powerful because I was a trainee. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I don't know, I was in my 30s and I had, up to that point, I had been a research scientist and quite powerful in that position. And suddenly I was a trainee and I was at the bottom of the pile and... That in itself was quite a shocking experience. And so I took it in my stride that that was just how it was going to be. And I think later I gained a lot of the sense of my own power just from from a lot of female colleagues. Um, and, and of course, it is typical for the profession that, I don't know, 80 or 90% of practitioners are women, even if when we're looking at who's represented in public, they're mostly men. So there's a very weird gender problem problem in the profession. But nevertheless, there are a lot of of very supportive, very powerful women in the profession who are very good therapists. Um, And and I've sort of grown with them and on them and supported by them and held by them. Um, and I, I would say that that's what's, what's allowed me to, to, you know, to become the practitioner that I am. Yeah. And, um, and just the, the, also the sense that the community where I, where I live and work, uh, I seem to have a good reputation. People send me clients. Yeah, yeah. So I must be getting something right. <laughs> but so, so, what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, to get power, it's not just something that we do individually inside of mind, but there's just something about the context. You know, uh, oh, yes. for all its limitations, the school you went to was one where people were open uh, to diversity, yeah. were open to listening, to, to feedback. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then you point out the very strong role that having other women, uh, strong women, women who had power yeah. in the profession, helped you. Yeah. So that sense of, you know, we're tremendously helped, you know, to gain power from a sense of other figures um, that inspire us or help us. That's right. Yeah. I would say, I would say for me that's, that's been crucial. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, the, the acquiring of one's own power is, is absolutely a social process and not just an individual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the acquiring, you said something I want to repeat, the acquiring of power is a social process. Yes. You know, so that's, uh, that's the opposite of isolation. Yes. The, the acquiring power and the, and the growing into one's power is, is a social process. 
um, even though I am not now talking about the purely socially constructed, like institutional power, um, which we would on the whole call slightly neurotic in body psychotherapy, um, but we are talking about fully embodied owned power, but also that is, is actually dependent on the social environment. It doesn't really exist in isolation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this sounds like a good place to end. Is this okay with you, or do you have something else? Yeah, absolutely fine. Yeah. Great. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. ...of power is a social process. Yes. You know, so that's, uh, that's the opposite of isolation. Yes. The, the acquiring power and the... And the Growing into one's power is, is a social process, um, even though I am not now talking about the purely socially constructed, like institutional power, um, which we would on the whole call slightly neurotic in body psychotherapy, um, but we are talking about fully embodied owned power, but also that is, is actually dependent on the social environment. It doesn't really exist in isolation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this sounds like a good place to end. Is this okay with you, or do you have something else? Yeah, there? absolutely fine. Yeah. Great. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com